Hey everyone, this is Ted O'Connell. Thank you for checking out the Med Prep to Go USMLE Step 3 podcast sample episodes. If you find that this audio content brings value to your studies, we encourage you to go to medpreptogo.com and check out the subscription podcast. You'll be able to see the entire content outline Dr. Raj Dasgupta and I put together, and you can subscribe if it looks like the audio content will help you succeed on USMLE Step 3. The podcast is completely ad-free and includes over 50 hours of high-yield material for the USMLE Step 3 exam. If you found this Step 3 podcast, there's a good chance you've listened to the Crush Step 1 or the USMLE Step 2 Secrets podcasts, you've used our free question bank, or you've listened to Dr. Raj's Beyond the Pearls podcast. We hope that whatever you've used in the past has helped you with your studies. As you may know, the goals of MedPrep to Go are to allow you to study on the go to get time back in your day and also to help cut the costs of medical education. We think we've priced the Step 3 podcast very competitively to bring you a great product while allowing us to cover the costs of putting this together and keep it hosted without ads. So thank you for checking this out and for your ongoing engagement with our content. Hi, everyone. So we're getting kind of close to the end of cardiology, which is great. We just finished talking about chest pain. So let's talk about CHF and then let's end up on valvular heart disease. So this is going to be what we're spending at least half an hour on before we start answering questions. This is going to be everything you know about congestive heart failure. So when I think about congestive heart failure for your board exams, I really put it into two broad categories. Are we talking about acute management of heart failure, or are we talking about the chronic management of heart failure? So a couple things, I always wanna take a step back before I go diving in. So I start off by saying, is congestive heart failure its own disease entity? The answer is not really. It's a manifestation of an underlying disease. Why is the patient in heart failure is always gonna be one of the um, uh, uh, underlying topics. So. If we talk about the two most common causes of congestive heart failure in the United States, what would those be? Number one, coronary artery disease. No ifs, ands, or buts. And number two, what are we going to be talking about? Hypertension. But of course, if there was a dashed line underneath CAD and hypertension, you could say any valvular heart disease, any of the cardiomyopathies that we're going to be talking about. And you know when we talk about cardiomyopathies, is it dilated? Is it hypertrophic? Is it restrictive? And they have all their differential diagnosis. So if there was talking about dilated cardiomyopathies, what is, are your differential for dilated cardiomyopathy? Could it be alcohol? Could it be viruses, you know? And when we talk about viruses, which one? Well, I guess they all can do it, but there's one virus that always jumps to mind. That's Kosaki B. Because remember, A causes hand, foot, and mouth disease. And it behooves me to mention what? Well, COVID-19, is that the most common thing that could happen when we talk about a COVID-19 infection? It's always going to be the lungs, but we definitely know that the heart can be involved. So what about vitamin deficiencies? So you could think about thiamine deficiency and get a wet berry berry. You could think about postpartum cardiomyopathy. So all these different things could do it. And of course, if you enjoy going to South America, what are you going to get? Chagas disease. So of course, there's a broad differential, but remember, 
CAD and hypertension are always the most important. And on the board exams, you know, race actually factors in a little bit because there are certain medications that we use to reduce mortality that are targeted certain races. So when I ask you, what is the most common race that gets CHF from coronary artery disease in the United States? The answer is Caucasians. If I were to say, what is the most common race that gets congestive heart failure from hypertension? The answer is African-Americans. Let's just mention those. So now that you've figured out why they have congestive heart failure, now we put them into two categories. So I would say the easiest category is always going to be chronic. Why? Because anytime you have chronic any disease, there's only one word that you need to know. And what is that word? Mortality. What are the drugs and devices that reduce mortality? And why is this so easy? Because you only need to do one thing. What do you need to do? Memorize. So you have to memorize those drugs So and devices. So we'll go over this, you know what I mean, uh, shortly. But when we talk about acute CHF, let me start off by saying this. Is there anything that reduces mortality in acute CHF? The answer is no. Nothing across the board reduces mortality. But um, what is the whole point about treating acute CHF is to make you feel better. And if you want to feel better, we, we call that what? Morbidity. So when we talk about CHF uh, for the board exams, the first thing to do is read the vignette. Where is the patient? Are they in the ER? Are they in the ICU? We're going to talk about acute management of these patients. If it's an outpatient visit, we're talking about what? Chronic. So when we talk about CHF, I mentioned that there's going to be two main categories when we talk about CHF, beyond calling it uh, acute and chronic. I would say CHF could be what we used to call systolic dysfunction and diastolic dysfunction. I say these were old terms because now we use the word, is it going to be with um, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction? People call that PEF-REF. Or is it going to be heart failure with preserved ejection fraction? People call that PEF-PEF. So <laughs> remember those. And if you want to determine if it's systolic or diastolic, well, what test are you going to order? That's right transthoracic echo. And what are you going to get from that transthoracic echo? You're going to get an estimate of the ejection fraction. So if it's going to be a systolic dysfunction, a HEF-REF, the EF is going to be low. If it's going to be diastolic dysfunction, HEF-PEF, the, the ejection fraction will be normal. And what is a very important point to get all the questions right on the board exams is that when we talk about acute CHF management, acute, it does not matter if it's going to be systolic or diastolic dysfunction acutely. We treat them all what? The same. That is very, very important. When we talk about chronic uh, CHF management, well, it kind of matters a little. And why do I say a little? Because are there any FDA-approved drugs or devices for strictly diastolic dysfunction CHF? The answer is no. The majority of our data comes from what? Systolic dysfunction. I wanted to mention that. So why don't we start off on acute and then we'll work our way to chronic. So I think all of us know how acute CHF is going to present. They're going to have dyspnea on exertion, orthopnea, proxismal nocturnal dyspnea, 
on physical exam, JVP, S3, lower extremity edema, bilateral pleural effusions. So we can go on and on and on. So once you identify it, I think the first question on your board exams is always going to be, what is the best first initial diagnostic test to perform when someone comes in with acute CHF exacerbation? And, you know, you could put a variety of options up there. You could put chest x-ray. You could put brain natriuretic peptide. You could put echocardiogram. And, of course, you could put EKG. And in reality, what are you going to order? I guess all of it, right? Boom, one shot. But sometimes they, in board exams, you, you just got to pick what? One. So of all those, remember that the answer is going to be EKG. Why? Let's walk through the other options. Can you diagnose heart failure solely based upon an x-ray? The answer is no, not really. Should you get a chest x-ray? The answer is sure, why not? You say shortness of breath, some kind of chest x-ray is going to be ordered. But it wouldn't be, per se, the first thing I get. Would you get a brain natriuretic peptide? Sure, why not? Especially if you don't know 100%, could there be a combination of COPD or could it be CHF? But you and I know that you're not going to wait the two, three days to get your N-terminal brain natriuretic peptide back, you know. Um, but you would order it probably, I guess, you know. And echo, sure, they're going to get echo at some time during that hospital admission or evaluation. But in the acute setting, it really doesn't matter if it's systolic or diastolic dysfunction. You're really just going to treat them to make them feel better. So you probably don't need that echo immediately. I think the most important thing to do is get an EKG. Of course, the practicalities of being non-invasive and cheap and it changes your management are all very, very important. But let's focus on changing your management because what did I say? CHF is not a disease. It's a manifestation of an underlying disease. So per se, if you get an EKG and it shows atrial fibrillation, well, how would you start off by treating the CHF? Yeah, treat the AFib. If EKG shows ST elevation MI, well, how do you treat the CHF? Well, I would start off by treating the MI. So that's why I would get an EKG first. So if they were going to ask you a your CHF question and you get an EKG, well, what would it show? It would show nothing because if it showed something, you treat the something else, okay? So that's why I put EKG here just as a starting point. They're probably on your board exams going to give you the EKG to interpret it to make your own decision of what you want to do next, but most likely it's going to be normal. So now they come in and you want to treat. So how do you treat them on the board exams? Well, I put them into three main categories. I'll use preload um, medications or things to reduce the preload. I'll use things that will increase contractility. And of course, when I put afterload here, there's only one thing you want to do to the afterload in CHF. You want the afterload to go down. You want to reduce the afterload. So now that we have these three categories, I start off in preload and I work my way over. So question comes, someone comes in with acute CHF. What are some medications, drugs that you can use to reduce the preload in CHF? And I would take your pen and circle the top two right here. So of course, everyone said diuretics. I would say, what category? You're going to say loop diuretic. And when you... If someone comes in with acute CHF, what route would you give that loop diuretic? The answer is IV. 
What are some category, what are some drugs for loop diuretics? Everyone uses furosemide, which is Lasix. There could be Demodex. There could be um, Bumex. I know a lot of people use Bumex quite a bit. Um, and of course, if I wanted to give a classic answer on the board exams, I would say if they are sulfa-allergic, then why don't we use things like ethacrinic acid? Not a very common thing we use, but just in case they're sulfa-allergic, I wanted to mention that for the boards. And how do loop diuretics reduce the preload, everyone? Well, remember that these patients are volume overloaded. So when we talk about blood volume, blood is made of two things. One is the cellular components of the blood, RBCs, WBCs, and platelets. The other part is plasma. And plasma is basically made up of two things. What two things make up the plasma? Number one, water. <laughs> Number two, proteins. So when you give a loop diuretic, what's going to happen? It's actually going to uh, reduce the water part of plasma. Therefore, it reduces what? The blood volume. Therefore, you reduce the what? The preload. So you definitely think about loop diuretics first. Outstanding. Um, what is another category of drug that can reduce the preload? Category would be nitrates. Now I'm going to ask you what nitrates specifically can fit there. Give me some drugs. And yes, I think one person said nitroglycerin. I could hear you even right through this computer. Can I have another example of another nitrate? You know, I, I heard someone say nitroprusside. So let's just kind of take a step back and talk about those two. So when we talk about nitroprusside, does nitroprusside work on the veins, everyone? The answer is, yeah, it does. Does nitro, nitroprusside work on the arteries? Sure it does. And I know that because we use it to treat what? Hypertensive emergency, you know? And um, what does it work more on? Where does it have more impact on, vein or artery? And the answer is arterial. Therefore, is nitroprusside going to be a preload reducer? Not really. It's going to be what? An afterload producer. And, you know, anytime you say nitroprusside, let me just say it, no one gets cyanide toxicity. Everyone memorizes thiocyanate. And you probably get that if you are in renal failure and you give the drug or using it for extended periods of time. But um, let's talk. So it's not nitroprusside. Nitroglycerin, let's just go through the routine. Does it work on the veins? Sure, of course. Does nitroglycerin work on the arteries? I don't know, there seems to be a little hesitation there. I mean, does nitroglycerin work on the arteries? And the answer is, yeah, of course it does. And how do I know that? You know, when you have stable angina, you gotta carry a little nitroglycerin because it relieves the pain by dilating the coronary arteries, good. And what does nitroglycerin have more effect on, artery or vein? The answer is vein. And that's why it's gonna be a great preload reducer. Um, when we talk about what route do you want to give it in acute CHF, chances are it's not going to be sublingual, you know, it's not going to be a little spray. You're going to give it what? IV, and you're going to titrate it. Good. So if you give loop diuretics and nitrates, and these are the two most common things that we use to reduce preload and make patients feel better when they have CHF. So those are my go-tos. I would put a dash line right here, and notice how it says no morphine. So... You know, in the olden days, I hate saying that, we used to give morphine to help reduce the preload, but there's too many side effects. And what's the one side effect of morphine that I really worry about? No, it's not the constipation. No, 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 it's not an itchy skin. It's the what? 
It's the respiratory drive. It's a respiratory depressant. You know, it works up here on those new receptors, you know? So because of its side effect profile, we don't use it in CHF. If this is chest pain, if this is acute coronary syndrome, by all means, use morphine to, you know, help out with that catecholamine surge from the pain that's going to be happening, but we don't use it for CHF. And by the way, everyone, how does morphine venodilate? How does it reduce the preload? Does anyone remember that? You can tell me the mechanism of action just saying one word. What word do you want to say? That's not the word. Uh, it's, it's going to be histamine. It releases histamine. And you know histamine is a very potent yep, vasodilator. Now, you will talk about this drug over here. It's called Neseratide. And this is kind of more of a drug from my day when I was, you know, training. Nasiratide just came out. I'm not going to tell you how long ago that was. But Nasiratide goes by the, the brand name Natricor. And basically, we use that in patients with acute CHF who didn't respond to loop diuretics to really, really reduce that preload. Um, one of the unique things about Nasiratide, one of the ways it works, it does that it kind of mimics a hormone that's natural in your body. And what hormone does Nasiratide kind of mimic a little bit? The answer is ANP. What does that stand for? Atrial natriuretic peptide. So what does the ANP do? It kind of works the opposite of what hormone? Not ADH, it's aldosterone. Aldosterone makes you retain sodium. What does ANP make you do? Dump it out. So per se, it doesn't really cause a diuresis. It causes a yeah, naturesis. And what is the old saying? Wherever sodium goes, who follows? Water. There you go. And that's why you reduce what? The preload. So not a very common drug, but I want you just to be aware that it exists. Good. And then the last thing, I wanted to put something under preload that's not medications. That's not medications. I mean, so is there anything we could do that's not a medication to help reduce preload in patients that come with acute CHF? And, you know, sometimes when we do live lecture, I get to hear a lot of great answers. Some people would say, we'll make the patient stand in the corner. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's kind of mean. Uh, one person one time said, maybe we should uh, do some bloodletting. We should bleed it out. I'm like, wow, that's kind of gruesome. Uh, Sometimes I hear the word Valsalva. I'm like, sure, how much Valsalva can you do standing in the corner when you're bleeding from the bloodletting? I don't know. But the answer is uh, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. So the key words here are positive pressure and non-invasive. So remember, when me and you are breathing right now, how are you breathing? Through what we call negative pressure ventilation. So when I take a breath in, what happens to venous return going back to the heart? The answer is it increases. And you kind of don't want that when you're fluid overloaded. So when you are on positive pressure, what happens? You're blasting the air into the trachea, down to the alveoli. Therefore, you're increasing intrathoracic pressure. So less blood will return to the right side of the heart. You're reducing what? The preload. And you definitely want that, you know? So um, when we talk about how do we put patients on positive pressure, you can do it in two ways, invasive and non-invasive. And it's kind of mean to be intubating people just to get that. I'm not saying they don't get intubated sometimes, but doing something non-invasive, putting a, a mask on them, something like a, a CPAP 
or a bi-level. And amazingly, there is good data for using continuous positive airway pressure as well as bi-level. Clinically, I use a lot of bi-level because I always love that blowing off, helping with ventilation, but there's data for CPAP too. Um, so this is gonna be a very important thing to know because I can just imagine many of my patients I see you know, here at USC, they have acute CHF, loop diuretics, nitrates, and they're probably gonna be on some kind of CPAP or BiPAP. So please know these for the board exams. And I'm gonna say that if you do these over here, around 80, 85% of patients are gonna feel what? Great, they're gonna feel symptomatically better. But if they don't, well, where do you move on to? You go to contractility. And it's kind of weird that I put the jogs in first because you know, we don't use a lot of digoxin now. It's kind of an olden day drug, you know, because there's just, you have to, it's not given as a drip. You have to, you know, kind of load it up. And there's so many toxicities, narrow therapeutic index. What is the potassium level all the time? Oh my God, they're toxic. Grab the digibind, you know what I mean? So we don't use a lot of digoxin anymore. And there are actually data about digoxin and atrial fibrillation that it may actually, you know, decrease survival a little bit, but I don't want to speak about it too much. But if we're going to use a contractility agent, you're probably going to move to the CCU or MICU, and we're going to give you a continuous IV drip of one of these two. One is going to be dobutamine. We know that's going to be a beta-1 agonist. The other is going to be milrinone. It goes by the brand name Primacor. And does anyone remember how milrinone works? That's right. You're awesome. That is a phosphodiesterase inhibitor. Good, good, good. So you're gonna put these uh, patients on these drips in, the, in, a, in a medical ICU setting. And if you do these things, of course, when you use either of these drugs, you always gotta watch out for the what? The blood pressure. You always gotta watch out for the blood pressure because which way can it go? Down. People always ask me, how does it go down with dobutamine? You know, in theory, it is a beta one agonist, but you just might get a little beta two. And if you activate beta two, it's gonna vaso. Dilate, very good. Um, so after you do this, maybe another five, 10% of patients will feel a little bit better. But if they don't feel better, what do we do? Move along, move along to what? Afterload. So now we're working on what? The arterioles. So what do we wanna do is decrease the afterload so the heart can push out blood much, much more easier. There is a boatload of drugs that you could use. I just put a few of them out there. I would say the one we think about is ACE inhibitors and ARBs. And you know why? Angiotensin II is a very potent vasoconstrictor. So if you block it, it's going to dilate. CCBs, sure, why not? If you use a dihydroperitene, it would dilate. But I, there's a bunch of other ones down here. Would I really give hydralazine? No, I'm not really a big fan of lupus. And you probably will get a reflex what? tachycardia, that probably won't help out too much. You want to have more time in diastole. But there are many, many things that can work there. So um, think about afterload. So how do I actually put all this together? Well, I put it together like this. If someone comes in with acute CHF, we want to make them feel better. So if I reduce the afterload, what happens to uh, cardiac output? Increases. And as you decrease the afterload, what happens to contractility? Increases. Do you want that in CHF? Yes. And as you increase the contractility, what happens to preload? It decreases. 
Do you want that in CHF? Yes. And this is the methodology of the madness. And why do we start off in preload first, not afterload? Because if you reduce arterial pressure first, what happens to blood pressure? Boom, it tanks. And you won't get any chance to use any preload or contractility agents. So please know that when we talk about the acute management of CHF. Now, let's go to the easiest one ever. It's going to be chronic. What's my favorite word? Mortality. Let's talk about the drugs first that reduce mortality. So starts off with what? Beta blockers. And let's just say it now that what are your favorite beta blockers? Which has the most evidence? Of course, it's going to be carvedilol. That's known as Coreg. It's going to be metoprolol, which is the long-acting toprolol XL. But can all patients afford these drugs? You know the answer is no. I mean, maybe they only could be on a tenolol. So obviously, you want to put on the right category of drug. It's nice if you could put them on the ones that have all the robust evidence, but we have to do what we need to do as far as clinical practice. But yes, please be aware of which drugs have the uh, more evidence base on your boards. ACE inhibitors, hey, you and I both know everyone's on what? Lisinopril. But if you, they have the money, it's great to be on Ramipril, which is what? Altase, yes, they have good drug. They have good data for it. So of course, ACE inhibitors reduce mortality. Beta blockers reduce mortality. Do ARBs reduce mortality? The answer is yes. I mean, things like low sartan have great data. Things like Val sartan had some great data. I, was, I believe it was called the Val Heft trial, you know, for Val sartan, but these are old trials. Oh, I said the word old again. But definitely, if you can't tolerate an ACE, you definitely want to put them on an ARB, you know? Um, Spironolactone, you know, aldactone can definitely do it. But remember, it doesn't do it when you want to start it. You're really thinking about people with uh, New York heart failure around three, you know, when you think about it. You got to think about the classic trial that showed that spironolactone reduced mortality. I believe that's called the RAILS trial. So we'll talk more about spironolactone shortly. Um, Eplerinone is kind of like the brother of spironolactone. They both brought, block aldactone. Eplerinone got super, super niche FDA approval. It reduces mortality in patients with CHF if they're post-MI and they have a reduced ejection fraction. Post-MI, reduced ejection fraction. And there was a trial called the Ethesis trial that really showed this. And that is a old trial also. So you may not see a lot of eplerinone, uh, but if we do use it, it's a post-MI trial. Um, what about this one? It's the combination of hydralazine and a nitrate. And that combination really has been shown to reduce mortality in patients whose CHF is secondary to what? Poorly controlled hypertension. And so this is really niched towards what? African-Americans. So giving that combination will reduce mortality in what? African-Americans. And now we're going to some of the newer stuff here. So, of course, I cannot escape this talk unless I mention the brand name Intresto. And when we talk about Intresto, it's going to be Sucubitril plus an ARB. And we know that Sucubitril is a nisiliprin inhibitor. It's a nisiliprin inhibitor. And what does nisiliprin do? Well, I'm pretty pumped about it because it's a new category of drug out there. 
And well, it pretty much prevents the breakdown of what? ANP. So the more ANP you have, the more you're gonna get what? Naturesis. And the more water is gonna follow that. So that's kind of a good thing. But apparently there is a reflexive increase in angiotensin II. And because there's a reflex in angiotensin II, we combine it with an ARB so we can block it. And this combination is called Entresto. And its claim to fame is that it went head to head against an ACE inhibitor and it won. So if you got great insurance, you could put them on Entresto. And I think I've seen in clinical practice, a lot of doctors, both cardiologists and primary care putting patients on this medication. And then the last one over here is Ivabradine. Did we talk about that already? The answer is we definitely did because they got two FDA approvals. Uh, one was for chronic stable angina. And it also got FDA approval for chronic CHF. And its claim to fame is, it's about the heart rate, isn't it? If you really want patients to do well, you want to control the heart rate with CHF. And that's the whole thing about beta blockers, right? That uh, beta blockers work where? On the diastolic interval. It gives you more time to fill, more time to perfuse the coronaries. So if you cannot control the heart rate based on beta blockers only, you could give Ivraberdine, which is the generic, the generic name, and it works as a sodium funny channel blocking drug, so it works at the SA node. So these, my friends, are the drugs that reduce what? Mortality. And if they're not on these medications, then you know what? It really doesn't reduce mortality. So you wanna make sure we understand those and we'll have many questions coming up shortly. Um, let me say one more thing that many of you might see cardiologists placing people with CHF on coenzyme Q10. And like, I'm sure you were thinking, I'm like, why are cardiologists doing this? Am I missing something? And apparently I was. There is a trial called the Q-Symbio trial. It's used for chronic CHF placing patient on coenzyme Q10. I haven't seen a question on the board exams about this, but the jury is still out about placing patients on coenzyme Q10. Um, let's finish off talking about devices. So what are gonna be the devices that will reduce mortality? I always think about the big three, you know? I think about an ICD, which is an intracardiac defibrillator. And if you wanna know when you get the device, you gotta memorize them, sorry. You gotta memorize the criteria. So for an ICD, we use ICDs for patients who have um, New York heart failure, definitely not class four, because class four, I mean, that's pretty mean. You know, We'll definitely use it for people who have like class three. And what's the other criteria is that the ejection fraction has to be what? That's right, less than 35%. Is that number gonna change sometime? Possibly, but right now we think about 35%. New York heart failure, class three, and EF less than 35%. Ooh, CRT, cardiac resynchronization therapy with a biventricular pacer. So what this does, this has got FDA approval for both class three and class four, because you're not shocking these patients. So it's class three and class four, and the EF has to be what? Less than 35%. And the cons about this is resynchronizing the ventricles. So what's the simple thing I could do to see if the ventricles are not in sync? I could get an EKG. And if you have a widened 
QRS complex, then you would have uh, be a candidate for a um, biventricular pacer. So once again, three criteria, New York class, New York heart failure class three and four. Number two, EF less than 35%. Number three, a widened QRS complex. And the whole point about this is that if your right and left ventricle are not in sync, it will look like this. But what you want is to do this together. And that's why you want to resynchronize the, uh, the ventricles. Well, that's what they told me, <laughs> you know. But uh, the last thing is a left ventricular assist device. And this is not talking about the one in the medical ICU, like a balloon pump. This is literally a device that we call this destination therapy. And there are data to show that, you know, in patients who are not transplant candidates and are just getting randomized to medical management by placing an LVAD in these patients, there is some survival benefit. So I want to put LVAD over here. And of course, you know, transplant is not a device, but of course you want to think about heart transplant in very certain individuals. So that is my spiel. And as you can tell, just like chest pain, this is a triple star high yield graph chart for the board exams. So let's start doing some questions. Let me give you a moment just to gather yourself, tidy up your notes, and we'll do the questions in one, in one second. All right, everyone. So let's hit those questions. But before we go to the question, my next slide is going to be, people always ask about dosing, especially when we talk about, you know, how much loop diuretic should I give? Should I give it every six hours because it's lay six, six hours? Should we give a continuous IV drip? What's the best way to treat people? I mean, I always try to be as evidence-based medicine as possible. And of course, there's a trial called the DOSE trial. And this is for acute CHF. And in summary, as I like to read the bottom, among patients with acute decompensated heart failure, the mode of administration, bolus versus infusion, and dosage of IV loop diuretic had no significant effect on overall effectiveness or safety of therapy. Higher doses may be preferable to lower doses with regards to various secondary endpoints. So the answer is because there's not a solid answer, they're never gonna ask you that on the board exams. And in my clinical opinion, you wanna know what is their baseline creatinine, what is their blood pressure? What other drugs are they going to be on? So all these things are going to factor in when choosing the dose of the loop diuretic. So here's a bunch of one-liners. Usually I have these very, very long questions, but I just want to become a couple of quick hitters for everyone. In terms of incidence and prevalence, all of the following cardiovascular diseases have remained stable or decreased, except, so which one of these is actually increasing? And the answer is, heart failure. That's why we're talking about this. And the main reason why is going to be the age of our population. We're doing a better job in controlling these uh, modifiable risk factors. So CHF is going up. We're seeing more of it, which is why it's going to be a very common question on the board exams. And there it is, getting higher. And as we mentioned earlier, that females, whether it's going to be um, heart attacks and acute coronary syndrome, or in regards to uh, CHF, they are having higher rates. And when we talk about, you know, hospitalizations, when we talk about CHF, it's one of the leading causes of hospitalizations in patients over 65 years of age. 
which of the following statements about heart failure in African-Americans is the most correct? So we can do this together. Is it more likely to have an ischemic ideology? The answer is no. Remember, coronary artery disease is more with Caucasians. Um, are they going to have a, uh, going to have, are going to be older? No, not on average. Are they going to have a lower rate of hospitalization? No, it's probably going to be the opposite, higher. So it really comes down to mortality. So the answer is, unfortunately, they're going to have a higher mortality when we talk about African-Americans and CHF. And like I said in bolded red, etiology is secondary to hypertension most of the time. Hydralazine and isosorbide was FDA approved for New York heart failure classes three and four. And as I mentioned, that they don't tend to be older on average, they actually tend to be younger on average. And here is the combination with the brand name Bidil. <clears throat> the cardiac finding suggestive of heart failure that is encountered most often on a physical exam is, oh boy, so is it gonna be fixed splitting? So the answer is no. Thick splitting is when you, whether you're taking a breath in or taking a breath out, inspiration or expiration, the pulmonic valve will always close second. And when do we see this? ASD, VSD, and even in very bad pulmonary arterial hypertension. But it's not going to be the most common. Is it going to be a reverse splitting of the P2? What does that mean? That means that the aortic valve closes second and the pulmonic valve closes first. And when do we see that or hear that? Uh, valvular diseases like aortic stenosis, or if you have a left bundle branch block, that's gonna happen. Um, physiological splitting of the P2, that's me right, right now, I take a breath in. What's gonna happen? I increase venous return going back to the right atrium. That blood volume is gonna go through the right ventricle. Therefore, the pulmonic valve will close second. So <clears throat> it comes down to S3 and S4. And what are those? Are those systolic heart sounds or diastolic? The answer is they're diastolic. And S3 is what? An early diastolic. S4 is late. And the one that's probably most encountered in heart failure will always be S3. It means volume overload. So the answer is C. And there are many heart failure signs. I mean, tachycardia, that's why beta blockers are so important. That's why drugs like Ivabradine got FDA approval. Of course, you could have pulmonary rails or wet crackles. A gallop is going to be an S3 or S4. You would think about that. Edema, JVP. And one thing I wanted to mention is a breathing pattern that we see mainly at night called central sleep apnea, which is a specific pattern called Sheen-Stokes respiration. And what did I put down here? There's actually a device. It's a diaphragmatic pacer. I'm not joking. Interventional cardiologist put it here. It got FDA approval for central sleep apnea, predominantly targeting patients with CHF who do have this Sheen-Stokes respiration. It paces the diaphragm. Finding that reliably indicates right heart failure of these include what? Is it going to be JVP? That's a good answer. You know, 
Is it going to be heart size on chest x-ray? Mm, not really. That doesn't tell me if it's going to be right-sided heart failure. Is it going to be peripheral edema? Well, you probably could get that with both right and left-sided heart failure. I wouldn't go with that. B and C, well, I don't like B to begin with, so I'm going to say not D. E, well, I don't really like, you know, choice B, so I'm going to say it's JVP. So it makes sense. If you have right-sided heart pressure, what really indicates that quite a bit of the choices here would be A, JVP. Very good. And of course, I put the word usually. And of those choices, that's the one that probably would be the best. And when we talk about the lower extremity edema, the reason why people are still saying that could have been the right answer is because it you can get lower extremity edema not necessarily with heart disease. You definitely can get that with nephrotic syndrome, cirrhosis, and other things where it deals with the oncotic pressure loss. So when we talk about this 72-year-old man with ischemic cardiomyopathy is admitted to the coronary care unit with dyspnea, orthopnea, weight gain, and leg swelling. He has not taken his medications for six days. Physical exam reveals afebrile, normal tensive, warm skin, engorged uh, jugular veins, bilateral rails, and S3 is heard, pedal edema. Which of the following four basic hemodynamic profiles best fits this patient? So why do I put this here is because if you go back to that chart, which we went over, where we talked about the management of acute CHF, and we said preload, contractility, afterload, well, that is assuming that you have the most common hemodynamic profile. And what do I mean by that? Anytime in clinical practice, when you want to treat a patient with CHF, you do have to physically touch and examine the patient. And you're gonna answer two questions. Are they wet or dry? Are they warm or cold? And when we talk about most patients that come in, they're gonna be a wet, warm patient. So warm or cold means, are they perfusing? And we're gonna assume that most patients are gonna have some kind of blood pressure to help them perfuse. And the other thing is gonna be, are they wet or dry? And most patients are gonna be wet because you're gonna have swelling of the legs, JVP, S3. So are there patients who have other profiles like cold and dry? The answer is sure but these are not gonna be common questions for the board exams. These are things that the heart failure service may encounter. And maybe there may be a stronger role for things like contractility agents in certain cases. But this patient is the wet warm patient. These are the quadrants I was talking about, the four basic hemodynamic profiles. The questions are, is there congestion at rest? Is there perfusion at rest? And you put them in one of these quadrants. And the chart I gave you is the most and only common quadrant on the board exams, which is the wet, warm patient. Which of the following is the most common etiology of heart failure? And you're looking at all these. It has to be C, coronary artery disease. So all these can cause heart failure, but of course, CAD is the most common. And at this time, it's gonna be almost 70% of patients. History of MI, hemodynamic CAD, of course, you could have non-ischemic etiologies, hypertension, valvular heart disease, and of course, there's miscellaneous. So, but remember, coronary artery disease is the most common. Which of the following medications prolong survival in heart failure? 
except. So this is one of the questions where I want you to think back to my chronic management part of the chart. Think of the drugs that I put on there. Which drug is not on that list? Oh, it sticks out like a sore thumb, isn't it? It's going to be digitalis. Answer here is going to be what? D. <clears throat> Which of the following findings best differentiates heart failure from pulmonary disease? Now, there seems to be a lot of wording over here, but the one theme across in all these is going to be the level of the brain natriuretic peptide. And if I was in a hurry, this is a question right before the block time is over. Well, which one would I pick? I mean, the higher the BNP, the most likely in heart failure you are. So would I pick the BNP of 300, 80, 800 or 100, well, I would say which one differentiates heart failure from pulmonic disease has to be the highest one. That'll be 800. So I'll start off here and I read the question, you know, JVP, a CVP of 12, BNP of 800. Well, the answer is going to be C. And this is one thing that we do is Take the history and the physical, but of course, sometimes we do need labs to help us out sometimes, especially if we're trying to differentiate heart failure and things like COPD. But when we talk about many of the labs nowadays, whether it's going to be a procalcitonin in regards to bacterial pneumonia, whether it's a D-dimer in regards to a pulmonary embolism, or a brain natriuretic peptide in CHF, all these labs really, really help us when it's negative but they don't help us as much when it's positive because there's so many confounders when it's going to be positive, but many of these labs have a very high negative predictive value. Calcium channel blockers are indicated for all of the following except. So let's just answer it like a normal question and we'll say, can we use calcium channel blockers? Do we use it for variant angina, otherwise known as prismentals angina? The answer is yes. Calcium channel blockers have antispasmodic effect. We, already went, we went through GI already. I said, hey, if you have diffuse esophageal spasm, definitely think about calcium channel blockers. If you have achalasia, think of calcium channel blockers. And of course here, think about prismentals angina, variant angina, calcium channel blockers. Do we use CCBs to control the heart rate? Of course, the non-dihydroperidine, diltiazem, verapamil. Do we use them for a hypertensive crisis, emergency, urgency? The answer is yes. So we can do these clevapine, nicardipine, all these drips that we can do. So definitely we use these dihydropyridines to do it. Do we use it for proxismal supraventricular tachycardia? Sure. These non-dihydropyridines like doltiazem will slow down the heart rate. So it definitely we can use them. Think back to when we talk about the word chronic, chronic means what? Mortality. In my list of drugs that reduce mortality, was calcium channel blockers listed there? The answer is no. And that's why we don't use CCBs directly for heart failure when we talk about mortality. Maybe if they have high blood pressure and other indications, but not directly for heart failure itself. So the answer is gonna be what? D. Good. <clears throat> the highest levels of brain natriuretic peptide are found in which organ? And <laughs> the answer is not brain. You know, in fact, that was one of those misnomers out there. Because when we when this uh, protein first came out, we discovered it in the brains of that's right, pigs, porcine. 
but it's not high in the brains of humans. That's where the brain came from. Um, it's not going to be the kidney, skeletal muscle, or adrenal glands. It's going to be what? The heart. And I put this here because, you know, many times when I look at the chart, I notice that people just don't order a brain natriuretic peptide anymore. They order an N-terminal pro-BNP. So I did a little, you know, research and talked to some cardiologists. And I said, what is the main difference, you know, between BNP and N-terminal pro-BNP? You know, they said that N-terminal pro-BNP has a longer plasma half-life, sure, but they also were quick to point out that they did studies and there was no significant difference in clinical management compared to just ordering a brain natriuretic peptide itself. They are different amino acid sequences, but really there is no difference clinically. So this led to this question. Are elevations in plasma BNP or the N-terminal pro-BNP associated with increased mortality in patients with acute coronary syndrome? So we're trying to combine ACS and CHF now. And the answer is, yeah. And I did put the journal articles here for everyone. And the way I, I kind of think of it is like, you know what's worse than just being in acute coronary syndrome? Yeah, being in CHF and acute coronary syndrome. So it shouldn't be surprising that you'll have an increase in mortality. BNP and internal pro-BNP should be corrected for which of the following? This is a great triple star high yield question for the boards because like I mentioned, there are so many things that can found a positive BNP. So can renal failure do it? The answer is yeah, definitely. So what does renal failure do to BNP? It's falsely elevated. What happens to obesity? I believe the, uh, people are obese, it's gonna be falsely what? Elevated. When you're elderly, it's gonna be falsely what? Low. And gender does play a role. And when we talk about you know um, factoring in, it depends whether you're male or female. But regardless, all these factor in when we talk about you know, what we should correct the BNP for. So the answer here is all of the above. And one thing I could have put there that gives you a falsely elevated BNP that makes a clinical difference to me being an ICU doctor is sepsis. That's why I'm not really a big fan of ordering a BNP when you're in septic shock because it's going to be falsely elevated. So the answer is E. So let's see if we're right. BNP will be falsely elevated in renal failure. It'll be false. Oh, I made a mistake. Look at that. Good thing we went over this. So for those of you who are writing, Raj, Dr. Raj made a, made a boo-boo. So it's going to be elevated in renal failure. It's going to be elevated in the elderly, elevated in females and sepsis, but it's going to be falsely low in obese. So please make that correction. Good. That's why I love doing this. You always need to, you know, jog my memory all the time. Okay. Which of the following statements regarding heart failure is correct? Let's see what we got here. The incidence of heart failure is decreasing. That sounds like a wrong answer. The New York heart classification of heart failure correlates with ejection fraction. You know what? It doesn't. It's all based upon symptoms. It's not based upon ejection fraction. 
which is good because when you talk to cardiologists, there are people who have a really bad ejection fraction that have great quality of life and people whose ejection fraction is relatively well and they're not doing good. So I, I think, so it doesn't really correlate that well. So it's not B. Um, what about D? The presence of shortness of breath helps differentiate diastolic from systolic dysfunction. No, the answer is, has to be what? C, but let's read what C is. The most useful diagnostic test in evaluating heart failure is echo of these question, uh, choices. This is definitely the best one. And yes, we, I think echo is very helpful to determine if it's systolic or diastolic. You know, there's many things you could do with it. And let me just take a step back and talk about some one basic science pearl, which is when you have a problem with systolic dysfunction, CHF, which, is, which will be a HEF-REF, the main thing is contractility. If you have a diastolic dysfunction, HEF-PEF, that's gonna be a problem with preload where you can't what? Relax. If you can't relax, you can't feel the left ventricle. Very good. <clears throat> so definitely think about echo as one of the main things that we would consider in evaluating patients with CHF. All right, part one of the question, 65-year-old man with a three-year history of heart failure has severe left ventricular dysfunction, EF is 20%. His last hospitalization for heart failure was around 18 months ago. Okay. And he generally feels okay. And is classified as New York heart classification one or two, not too bad. But in your office, uh, they notice an eight pound weight gain. All right. So 65 year old in the office feels okay, but he gained eight pounds. His JVP is elevated at nine. So usually I think of my JP, JVP around five, just what the CVP should be. Um, there's some rails at the right base, maybe has a right-sided pleural fusion. Right-sided pleural fusions are very common in CHF. On cardiovascular exam, there's a soft S3, so some volume overload. And they, you do notice that patient has swelling bilaterally. So yeah, I think this patient is, he has, is a little volume overloaded, volume up. Which of the following do you recommend? So let's do this together. So which ones would be the wrong answer on the board exams? Would it be E, referred to a cardiologist? You know, very tempting, but the answer is no. We try not to refer on boards if possible. Um, is this someone who says, hey, doctor, I feel okay. Would you be like, go, go to the hospital immediately? That's a little scary. Um, what about B? I like B, you know what I mean? Uh, you're like, hey, you know, elective hospitalization. Hey, you know what? Why don't you go home? Why don't you watch, you know, want, do a little binge watching, watch, finish Stranger Things. And when you're done with that, uh, come back in about, you know, three days. And then we could, at your convenience, go to the hospital. That doesn't make any, that doesn't make sense to me. So it really comes down to outpatient management, which I agree. And is this someone you just want to do a weight reduction diet? Why not? I mean, that's not wrong but he's volume up. He needs a little what? Diuretic. And the answer is gonna be what? C. Part two, well, same question, same patient. Oh, which of the patient's medical regimen should include, this patient's medical regimen should include which of the following combinations if he's now heart class three? So this is the patient. He was one and two. 
Now, if he's New York Heart Failure Class 3, what does he need to be on? So these questions are always about what? Mortality. Make sure he's on a lot of mortality drugs. So uh, we're going to put him on a diuretic. We already said that. So I like ACEs. I like beta blockers. Uh-oh. Digoxin? Nope. Not going to put him on that. So A is wrong. Calcium channel blockers? That reduce mortality? Nope. That's wrong. Digoxin? Wrong. Digoxin? Wrong. So by default, choice C is the only one that has things that reduce mortality. ACE, beta blocker, and what? Aldosterone. And when we talk about aldosterone, I mentioned already, the classic trial was called the RAILS trial. And these are gonna be individuals that we place on what? 25 milligrams of spironolactone daily. So definitely think about this for the board exams. Which of the following are useful for distinguishing systolic from diastolic heart failure? So if you haven't noticed, they definitely like these questions for the boards. Is it gonna be shooting a chest X-ray? The answer is no. Is it gonna be um, having JVP? The answer is no. Is it gonna be, I heard a third heart sound or I have rails? The answer is no. I put this here because as I mentioned earlier, if they ever ask this question, you wanna know what is gonna be a HEF-REF versus HEF-PEF? What test do you need to order? You got it, echo. Seventy-six-year-old man with ischemic cardiomyopathy in New York Heart Failure Class Four presents with his daughter to your office. His most recent MI was five years ago, and he underwent cabbage at age seventy-four. He is taking aspirin, beta blocker, ACE inhibitor, spironolactone. He's on DIG and frosamide. His EF is seventy uh, is twenty percent. Uh oh, by recent echo. His EKG shows sinus rhythm, anterior Q waves with a QR width of 110 milliseconds. His daughter is worried about the risk of sudden cardiac death and wants him to have a intracardiac defibrillator and maybe one of those new biventricular pacers that she read about. What is the best advice? So this is a great question talking about devices that reduce mortality. Do you remember the criteria? So let's go through this together. So, so in this patient, uh, would this be a, a patient who's a candidate for an ICD? And the answer is what? No. Why not ICD? He's New York Heart class what? Four. We don't put ICDs in class four. It needs to be class what? Three. Would he be a candidate for a biventricular pacer? The answer is no. Why? Because the QRS is not what? widened. If it was widened, then he definitely would be a candidate uh, because of the fact that he does have an EF less than uh, 20%. I don't mind him heart class four when you talk about biventricular pacer, but the QRS is not widened. So I would say let's go through these together. So is it going to be referred to EP testing? And then once you provoke an arrhythmia given an ICD, the answer is that sounds very barbaric. So no, it's not gonna be A. Should you do EP testing and then do resynchronization re therapy if you know it's positive on the EP testing, otherwise ICD, no. So just insert an ICD and call the day. The answer is no, we talked about that already. He's New York Heart Class Four. 
is it going to be, you know what, let's just place a Zeo patch on this guy. And, you know, I wanted to put something about Zeo patches because uh, I do see a lot of them. And Zeo patch is going to be, you know, the new way we can think about arrhythmias. They can go home on it. It's much, much, much more easier than doing a Holter monitor. And, you know, there is actually, when there is arrhythmias, it gets sent to uh, the company that will inform the doctor about these arrhythmias. But this is not what we're talking about here. He doesn't need a Zeo patch. So by default, it's got to be D. But what does choice D say? Refer to disease management and attempt to improve his functional class. So if, if he improve his functional class, that'll be class three. If he's class three, then because the EF is less than 35%, you could consider what? An intracardiac defibrillator. He does not get resynchronization because of what? The QRS width is not widened. So this is a great question for the board exams to incorporate memorizing and understanding criteria for devices. So here are all the buzzwords I was talking about. ICD is contraindicated in New York heart failure class four. And according to the MANDA two criteria, if he can meet class three, he is suitable for an ICD implant. So that's the evidence-based trials, the MANDIT-2 trial. And remember, the QRS width was less than 120 milliseconds. He does not qualify for Medicare reimbursement for biventricular pacing at the present time. And biventricular pacing for New York heart failure, two through four, which is good. Uh, things are always changing. I think I may have said earlier in the video, three to four. But, you know, I think that if you meet all the criteria, now it's being FDA approved for two to four, so I'm glad I mentioned that. And Zeo patch, this is what it looks like. FDA approved, can be worn comfortably up to 14 days. Remember, Holta monitors can be worn up to 24 to 48 hours. And we do this to look for arrhythmias. Implantable uh, cardiac defibrillators are indicated for the primary prevention of sudden cardiac death in with which of the following situations. So we mentioned already, what does the EF have to be? Less than 35. So just based upon that, EF is 40? No. EF is less than 40? Well, sure, I do like that. You know, and, and there is uh, some syncope, but no coronary disease. Frequent PFCs and uh, EF at 40? No. Postpartum cardiomyopathy? No. Or what about a post-MI and a left uh, ventricular ejection fraction of 25%? I like that. I like that quite a bit. So of these choices, which one would be the best? It would have to be choice what? A. Very good. And this is going to be the MANDA-2 trial demonstrating that a 30% reduction in mortality in patients with a previous MI and left ventricular ejection fraction less than 30%. In patients with left ventricular failure, tachycardia often results in, now I love this because we've been talking a lot about the heart rate. And if you have tachycardia, let's think about this, that what's gonna happen is there's no time to fill during diastole, therefore preload will go down, therefore stroke volume goes down, and therefore cardiac output decreases, everything is gonna what? Back up. So things will back up from the left ventricle to the left atrium, to the pulmonary vein, which means the 
pulmonary capillary wedge pressure needs to, will be what? Increased. And if you're tacky, what happens to diastolic fling time? Decreases. And like I said, it's all gonna back up from left ventricle to left atrium, so left atrial pressure is gonna be increased. So just by the way I talked about it, the answer has to be what? E, all of the above. And this is why controlling the heart rate is so important that if you can't do it with beta blockers, what do we think about? Ivabradine. And like I mentioned, Ivabradine should be considered in patients with symptomatic heart failure, EF of less than 35%, who have an elevated heart rate, at least greater than 70, that's not controlled on beta blockers or not tolerated with beta blockers. All right, we're nearing the end. Let's get a couple more extra questions. 62-year-old with hypertension, diabetes, E, it's a male, sustains an anterior wall MI. He had been helicoptered to a tertiary care center and underwent stenting. Um, they stented his LAD. An echo prior to discharge reveals moderate left ventricular dysfunction. The EF is 35%. There is severe hypokinesis of the anterior apical wall and mild mitral regurgitation. He has a one out of six short systolic ejection murmur and he has an S3. In addition, to antiplatelet therapy with an ACE inhibitor, beta blocker, and statin. And these all make sense because he just had an MI and he's in some CHF. Which of the following do you recommend? So when I'm looking at this, you always want to think about people who uh, medications that will improve mortality. So it's not going to be DIG. It's not going to be Lasix and DIG. I don't think Lasix is going to be the thing we're going to talk about at this point right now, now that he's doing better. Well, eplerinone can reduce mortality and so does spironolactone, but what is this? He is someone that had CHF post-MI. And if you're post-MI and have an EF of 35% or, or lower, there is data to use what? Eplerinone. What's the name of the trial? The Ephesus trial. And the answer here is gonna be B, eplerinone. Brand name is Inspra. And I put the trial here, and what is it? It evaluated mortality benefits in, of the select uh, people who are on a plerinone in patients with acute MI complicated by an EF that's going to be low, less than 35%. Good. Here are some of the results of the trial in regards to endpoints, cardiovascular mortality, sudden cardiac death, heart failure, uh, hospitalizations. A 65-year-old previously healthy man sustains a large anterior MI. 2D echo reveals an injection fraction of 30% and mild mitral regurgitation. He has mild CHF early in his course, which responds to diuretic. That seems good. ACE inhibitors and beta blockers have been started great. Uh, which of the following do you recommend prior to discharge. All right, we see this all the time, the very common thing that we're gonna get on the boards, what happens during discharge of these patients. So, should we implant a ICD? Well, is EF is, you know, less than 35%, you know, um, that does sound tempting, but the problem is he just had the MI. There is a chance if he's on the right drugs, 
that he may have some good remodeling and EF will go up. Uh, so I think implanting a uh, cardiac defibrillator right now is, is kind of aggressive, you know? Should we perform EP studies and try to induce some BTAC? And if it does, maybe implant an ICD. That sounds very barbaric. We don't do that. Um, what about no ICD is indicated? Well, I mean, that's, that's a strong statement. I mean, if the ejection fraction stays low, it definitely would be indicated. The problem is we just don't know where is it going to go. Is it going to recuperate or not? It's kind of like a roll of the dice. So is there something that we need to do, you know, to uh, maybe help this guy out while we're waiting? The answer is yes. But before I get to that, let's read the last answer. Reevaluate for the need in six weeks. Yes, you know, that's the right answer. So it's going to be D. But is there something we need to offer this patient, you know, just in case he does have sudden cardiac death because the ejection fraction is low while waiting these six weeks to see if he gets an ICD? The answer is yes. He needs a what? A life vest. I agree. So when we talk about these patients, um, to answer this one, multiple trials, why is the answer D? Multiple trials over the past decades suggest that ICDs can decrease the risk of sudden cardiac death. The first trials that built the foundation for current trials were that were secondary prevention. So the data were followed up with three primary prevention trials showing that ICDs are beneficial in post-MI patients. That's the MANDIT, MUST, and MANDIT-2. So just to give you some evidence-based medicine. Um, also, like I said, we want to see if the ejection fraction is going to improve. Thus, aggressive pharmacological therapy should be used in the immediate four to six week period following an MI. And then we will reevaluate. And I mentioned already the word life vest. What is a life vest? It's not what you see here. It's this. It's a wearable defibrillator. And it's actually a bridge to see if the EF is going to recover or not. It's a bridge to getting that ICD. And in individuals who have one, let's say they become infected or they have to take them out for a period of time, we do uh, give these life vests. And um, it's important that we consider this, and I have seen this question on the board exams. 60-year-old man with dilated, idiopathic dilated cardiomyopathy is admitted to the intensive care unit with dyspnea. Medications include an ACE inhibitor, digoxin, and furosemide. Physical exam reveals blood pressure of 100 over 60, engorged JVP, bilateral rails, and S3, pedal edema. Chest X-ray confirms pulmonary edema. The EF is 25% on to the echo. Patient improved. They reduced the preload with IV diuretics, and they even did some salt restriction. So it sounds like this is a gentleman that came in with CHF and now is feeling better. Which of the following statements is correct? So let's go over these together. So carbidolol beta blocker. Should a beta blocker have been initiated at the time of admission? And the answer is no. So let's take a moment to talk about that. When we go back to my opening chart, I said, how do we treat acute CHF? Notice that nowhere on there was given beta blockers in the acute setting. Why? Because what are beta blockers? They're negative inotropes, you know? So when you have CHF, acutely, that's not when you want to do it. Of course, beta blockers reduce mortality, and that's what we spoke so much about them in the chronic side, but we usually don't start beta blockers in the acute setting. So the answer is definitely not going to be A. Should he be continued on the same regimen? 
well, his EF is what, 20, 25%? He has CHF? No, he needs to be on things that reduce mortality. So he definitely needs a beta blocker. So the answer is not B. T-shirt's uh, blood pressure of 100 over 60 is a contraindication for a beta blocker? The answer is no. And you know that many people with CHF, they're going to have a low blood pressure anyways. And there's always a point of how low they're going to be, but lower the blood pressure means lower afterload. So that's not a contraindication. Is a low ejection fraction a contraindication for a beta blocker? Not even close. Some cardiologists say the lower the EF, the better the beta blocker will work. So by default, my answer has to be what? C. So let's read it. Um, patient should receive a beta blocker once he is stable, preferably as an outpatient. The answer is yes. Very good. And all the things I spoke about are here in this slide. So you can press pause and read each one. Bonus CHF question, all right. What is a device, a device for fluid overload in CHF that can be done as an inpatient or outpatient? So device that can help out with being volume overloaded. Hmm. So this is something that, you know, you may not use it in every hospital. Uh, but one thing that we can do when we're really stuck as an inpatient, inpatient, and I can't get the fluid off, I could do just, you know, not uh, hemodialysis, but hemofiltration, just take out the fluid. But that can't really be done as an outpatient. Is there a device that can do it? Yeah. It's called what? Aquapheresis. Because remember, when we actually think of blood volume, the plasma has all the water. So there is something, a device, where you can do it at home. You actually could do it through a pick line where you can just take off the excess water. And if you want to read more about it, you can go to chfsolutions.com. But I just wanted to mention it. I don't, you know, I don't believe this really took off quite a bit, but people who do a lot of heart failure in cardiology may be familiar with aquaphoresis. Just want you to be familiar with the word. What new category of drug was approved or five years ago now for chronic heart failure, you read my mind, Intresto. And I just want to make sure I put some information about it. So it's a combination of Sucubitril, and which is a nisiliprin inhibitor, and with an ARB. The study was called the Paradigm HF study. And it showed that Intresto was superior to an ACE inhibitor. Which one did they go against? Enalapril. And what happens is that uh, this Nisiliprin inhibitor increases ANP. So you get a lot of naturesis. And because there's a reflex increase in angiotensin II, we combine it with what? An ARB. And here is the journal article that I'm sure many people reviewed when they do their cardiology rotations. What is the name of the first and only FDA-approved heart failure monitoring system proven to significantly reduce heart failure admissions. I think that's very important. That's what we want to do. And improve quality of life. So many of you have seen this during your rotations. This is going to be the cardio MEMS device. So this was actually approved in 2014, six years ago. You know, it's kind of like a portable Swan-Gans catheter. So where do we place this? In the pulmonary artery. The device itself is about as big as a dime. So I put a dime here for scaling. And basically you need to have, you know, a whole, you know, team effort. So when they 
sense that these patients are fluid overloaded, that someone needs to be contacted to increase the diuretic, to increase the diuretic. And I do have patients who have the CardioMem devices because there are frequent hospitalizations. All right, good sense we're getting closer to the end. I think I put a couple beyond the pearls here. So a 56-year-old man with CHF is admitted to the hospital with a two-week history of increasing dyspnea on exertion and fatigue. He also has type 2 diabetes. Medications are metformin, ACE inhibitor, beta blocker, Lasix, metolazone, which is a thiazide diuretic, and Johnson. On exam, blood pressure is 100 over 60. Heart rate is 95. Respiratory rate is 20. He is somewhat confused and inattentive. JVD is present at the angle of the jaw while sitting. Cardiac exam reveals an S3. There are bi-basal crackles on pulmonary exam. He has edema to the mid-thighs. Extremities appear mottled and are cool to touch. His creatinine is elevated at 3.1. His baseline value is, you know, 1.1. And his sodium is ooh, low at 133. Stop right there. So is hyponatremia poor prognosis in CHF? The answer is yes. And before we finish this question, who could tell me, all my residents and fellows and students listening right now, why is the sodium low when you have very bad CHF? Tell me the hormone. The answer is ADH. Why? It's because when you have very bad CHF like this patient, where's all the fluid? The third space. Intravascularly, they're very deplete. And people only think that um, osmolarity influences, influences ADH, and it does the most, but there are also volume receptors. There's also stretch receptors where? In the right ventricle. So when you are volume down in the vessel intravascularly, well, it's a signal to release what? ADH. And of course, these patients don't need to retain water. They're really volume overloaded. But as you bring back that water, what happens to serum sodium? It gets what? Dilute. So if this is occurring, hyponatremia, you know these, this patient's CHF is horrible. EKG shows no evidence of ischemia. Chest x-ray shows cardiomegaly and some vascular congestion. In addition to IV diuresis, good, which of the following is the most appropriate management? Well, let's look at these choices. So does this patient need an aortic balloon pump right now? Probably not. This patient doesn't appear to be in cardiogenic shock. I don't think we need to put a balloon pump in him. Do we need to put a Swan-Gans catheter? You know, Really, you do that if you think you don't know if the patient's volume overloaded or not. But S3 and edema and crackles, I mean, I can't begin to tell you this patient is very volume overloaded. I don't think it's going to change your what? Management. So I think devices are not the way to go. I think in someone who probably has a low EF and volume overloaded, I mean, you may want to consider using what? A contractility agent. And the hard part is, is that they gave two contractility agents here. They gave dobutamine and they gave milrinone. So which one is going to be the right answer? So who says it's going to be dobutamine? Raise your hand. All right. What about milrinone? So the answer here is going to be dobutamine. Why? Well, it really comes down to that creatinine min 3-1. Which one of those is probably going to be a little more safer in patients who have renal failure? It's going to be 
dopamine. And the answer here is going to be A. Really good. Really, really, really good. And I think, wow, look at that. We did it. We conquered CHF. I know that was a long section, but what I do is compile all the questions from the 15, 16 years I've been teaching board review. So you have every question known to man. Uh, we only have one section left. It's going to be valvular heart disease. I definitely feel you guys need time to kind of catch up on your notes. We'll come back and we'll finish off cardiology. See you soon.